Um, today's scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go to God one more time, and let's go to him in prayer. Lord, your word says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And yet, Father, we are confronted this morning with heavy hearts, with news that we could ever, never call good. And yet, Lord, even in the midst of such sorrowful news, there is embedded within it the hope of the gospel. Father, your servant, Reverend Han, is now in your presence. And for generations, he has preached the gospel. He has preached it faithfully to where even so many in this room are evidence of his faithfulness to the call that you have extended to him. And now, Lord, we rejoice as he does by your side as we now consider this time of year. Lord, death is our greatest enemy, and yet it is through the birth of your son, Jesus. It is through your first advent that we know that death has no power over us. And therefore, the shadows of death, of sickness, of sorrow, of pain, of wars, of conflict, have no power over us either. Lord, we come to you now asking for you to extend comfort to those among us who have been affected very much by today's news. We pray for those among us here who've come through these doors with other things weighing them down, whatever sorrows, anxieties that they may have brought. And we ask now, Lord Jesus, that you would be faithful into nourishing and feeding our souls so that not only would we cope, but that we would endure through seasons of sorrow, even in times of seasons of celebration. Father, we are so grateful that because of the arrival of your son, Jesus, there is a baseline hope that could never, never be eviscerated, that never could be disrupted because of the great work of your son Jesus on the cross, the work that we trust on, the work that we depend on for our identity, for our hope, for our purpose, as well as the promise of our destiny, the destiny that even now your servant, Pastor Han, is enjoying as we pray. Oh God, would you help us now and give us ears to hear banish whatever distracting and discouraging thoughts so that the enemy would not be successful in his attempt in keeping us deaf and dull to the word of God. Oh, Lord, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name and all God's people together said, amen and amen. So we're currently in our Advent or Christmas sermon series, and we've entitled this series, The Christmas Names of Jesus. And the reason why we call it The Christmas Names of Jesus is because it's in reference to these names that the prophet Isaiah prophetically named of Jesus over 700 years prior to his birth. And what we've discovered so far in this series is that each of these names tell us something unique Not only about Jesus, of course it does, but more specifically about the significance of his arrival on Christmas Day. So far in this series, we looked at the first two names of Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Well, today, we're going to take a look at 
the third name that Isaiah references Jesus, and that is Prince of Peace. We're skipping over Everlasting Father. We're going to save that for last, for next week. But today, I want to talk to you about what Isaiah means when he refers to Jesus as the Prince of Peace. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this morning. Number one, what Jesus being Prince of Peace says about us. Number two, why Jesus needs to be the Prince of Peace for us. And finally, how Jesus succeeds in being the Prince of Peace for us. What it says about us, why we need Jesus to be Prince of Peace for us, and how Jesus is successful as being the Prince of Peace. All right? So let's jump right in. First, what Jesus being Prince of Peace assumes about us. Now, for those of you who grew up going to church, attending Sunday school and and Bible lessons, you might be confused about this particular name that Isaiah references Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And the reason why you are confused about that particular name is because it goes against another well-known title that is frequently attributed to Jesus. And what title am I thinking about? King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, right? We are taught throughout our Bible study Sunday school lessons that Jesus is the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He is the preeminent one. He is above all power, all authority. The buck stops with him from a cosmic standpoint. There is no one greater in power, no one greater in authority than Jesus himself. And indeed, Scripture does affirm that Jesus is the preeminent one. He is the all-powerful, the all-authoritative. This is why the Apostle John, as he's describing his vision of the second coming of Jesus at the end of the world, This is what he says regarding Jesus. This is Revelation 19, verse 16. Follow along. On his, Jesus' robe, at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. So yes, the Bible does indeed refer to Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, which further highlights, does it not, the confusion of why he calls Isaiah, calls Jesus Prince of Peace. Isaiah, why are you calling him prince? Isn't it more theologically, biblically accurate to call him the king of peace, not the prince of peace? Because by referring to him as prince, he's kind of alluding to this idea that there is a greater authority than Jesus, that there is a greater power to where Jesus himself would have to submit to. But that can't be right, can it? You know, one of the interesting things that you discover as you read through the gospel, specifically the gospel of John, is that every now and then, Jesus does refer to himself as someone who is under Authority, someone to whom he is held accountable to. Take a listen to a couple samplings from the book of John as you'll see what I mean. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I, Jesus, have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John chapter 8, verse 28 to 29. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but just speak as the Father has taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And finally, John 14, remember that I told you what I told you. I am going away, but I will come back to you again. If you really love me, you would be happy that I'm going to the Father who is greater than I am. So, based on these passages of scriptures and countless of others, it is indeed true. Jesus is under the authority of someone. He is under the authority of God the Father. Now, you hear that, and you're like, well, wait a minute. If that's true, Pastor John, then why does the Bible also call him King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Isn't it more appropriate to say that his father, God the Father, is King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And furthermore, doesn't the Bible teach that the Trinity, the nature of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, doesn't the Bible teach that the triune God are equal in power and authority? I don't make sense of all this. Help me, Pastor John. Hey, slow down. Before you get carried away with these theological riddles, you have to understand something. When Jesus refers to himself as someone who is under the authority, he is not simply speaking as God the Son. 
No, he is speaking as God-man, God and man. You see, the Bible teaches us that when Jesus was born on Christmas, he was both fully God and fully man. Theologians refer to this as the hypostatic union. God, when he walked on this earth as Jesus, was both fully God and he was fully man. And please don't even bother asking me how to explain it because I cannot explain it. And any other person who was dumb enough to try and explain it always ended up being condemned as a heretic in the history of the church. It's one of those mysteries that we cannot understand, and yet it's one of those things that we have to affirm because the Bible clearly teaches it. But here's the point that I'm trying to make. When Jesus came into this world, He didn't just come to restore our relationship with God. He didn't just come to restore mankind's relationship with God. He also came to restore man or humanity's ability to be man again or to be human again. And what I mean by that is Jesus took on full human form because sin has caused every single one of us to turn out subhuman. Okay? His work on the cross gives back to us what we all forfeit whenever we sin and every time we sin. Jesus came to make us human again. He came to give back to us our humanity. Listen to how one theologian by the name of N.T. Wright, how he puts it. Listen to what he says, quote, The purpose of Jesus is that he rescues us from everything that is getting in the way of our being fully human. He enables us to be fully human again. Jesus enables damaged, broken, and hurting people to be flourishing human beings again. That's what the gospel does on a worldwide scale. Isn't that beautiful? What is he essentially saying? He's saying Jesus was fully human so that we could be fully human again. Again, Jesus came to be fully human so that through him we could be fully human again. But of course, that idea begs the question. What does it exactly mean to be fully human? What exactly did Jesus come to do to restore in us so that we could be properly considered human again? Well, in order to answer that question, you have to go back to the beginning of human history, which is chronicled for us in the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. Follow along as I read it. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. In reflecting on these very verses that I just read to you, a theologian and New Testament scholar by the name of Greg Beale, listen to how he explains what these verses are saying. Can we have Dr. Beale's quote? He says this, They, Adam and Eve, were to reflect God's kingship by being his vice regents, representatives on earth. Because Adam and Eve were to subdue and rule over the earth, it is plausible to suggest that they were to extend the geographical boundaries of the garden until Eden covered the whole earth. Now, this is very interesting. Because according to Dr. Beale, and I think he is biblically sound when he says this, is that Eden, the Garden of Eden, didn't cover the whole earth. It only covered a small portion of the earth. And God created Adam and Eve and all their descendants to expand the boundaries of Eden to where it would eventually cover the earth okay now you realize what it means it means that part of what it means to be human is to be explorers to be people who go out on adventures so that we could extend the boundaries of eden to where it would eventually cover the earth as the knowledge of the lord covers the sea as it says in malachi some of you like oh i don't know if that's right follow along right 
Part of what it means to be human is to be explorers, to be adventurers, to go out into unfamiliar territory and discover what is out there through exploration, through adventure. That is part and parcel of what it means to be a human being. And here's what you may not know. In the days when monarchs ruled the world, that is what princes did. Did you know that? Princes were the ones who were commissioned to go outside of the kingdom and represent the king. It makes sense because the prince is literally made in the image of the king, right? He is the son. He bears the image. He looks like he resembles the father, which is why in some cultures, princes would be the ones who would be the main representative going to other kingdoms, representing the kingdom of his father. This is why in some cultures, it would be the prince who would lead the armies of the kingdom so he could further expand the kingdom of his father, right? This is why princes were called to do that. That was their duty to their king. And scripture tells us that is the duty of every human being because we bear the image of our king as well. Now, what does that mean? (laughs) It's going to sound a little corny, but it's true. Every human being was created by God to be a prince if you're a guy, to be a princess if you're a woman. Sometimes my little girl says, Daddy, can I be a princess? And I say, Honey, not only can you be, you already are a princess because you're made in the image of your king, right? My son says, I want to be a knight. You don't have to be a knight, son. You are a prince because you bear the image of your father in heaven. God created us, human beings, to be royal explorers, royal adventurers who would go out into the created world and discover what was out there. And this human instinct for adventure is even something that even well-prominent, well-learned psychologists of human nature have discovered. Listen to how one scholar by the name of Paul Tournier, how he puts it. He says this, quote, The urge of adventure must be considered an instinct since it has the universality and the indomitable power characteristic of instinct. And because its satisfaction affords a specific joy, which always accompanies the satisfaction of instinct, the instinct of adventure may be cloaked, smothered, and repressed, but it never disappears from the human personality. It seems to be that this instinct for adventure is one of the most obvious explanations for the characteristic behavior of man, one of the great driving forces of his actions, as important as the instinct of self-preservation which has so often been described as the mainspring of civilization and its technological or technical progress. What does it mean to be human? It means to be an explorer, someone who has the urge to go out and go on the quest, go on the search, whatever quest or search you categorize it as. We are wired with a creational instinct to go out and see what is out there to explore. Because that is what we are by nature. We are prince and princess. We are royal explorers of God. But here's the thing. The fact that Jesus had to come to earth and restore us as humans, restore us as prince and princesses, that tells us something. What does it tell us? It tells us that we, for some reason, do not live out this calling to be explorers for God. For some reason, we have forfeited this amazing calling from God to go out and to discover what is out there for the sake and glory of God. And here's the question. Why? Why do we forfeit that? Why do we give that up? Why are we not doing it? The answer leads me to my next point. Why Jesus needs to be the Prince of Peace for us. Now, I want to make sure that you didn't misunderstand my last statement that I just made in my last point just now, okay? When I said that Jesus came to restore us to be prince and princesses again, to make us fully human again, right, so that we would be explorers for God, I was not implying or saying that we don't explore at all. Oh, no, 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 no. That is not the case. 
Because every single human being still has this creational instinct that gives the impulse for them to explore. Okay? Every human being that walks on this earth is driven with some sort of adventure, some sort of quest in mind. All of you in here, whether you consciously are aware of it or not, all of you in here, you're on a search right now. You're on an adventure. You're on a quest. But here's the problem. The goal and the purpose of this search, of this discovery, of this quest, is no longer the correct purpose. It's another purpose, and it's a very, very bad purpose. Let me explain what I mean. Let me back up for just a moment and simply ask this question. Why did God create us for this instinct for adventure? I mean, when he created Eden, excuse me, why did he create to only cover a portion of the earth and thereby commission Adam and Eve and all their descendants, mankind, to expand the borders to where we would be explorers for God? Why would God do that? Well, one theologian and philosopher by the name of John Frame answers that question so perfectly and clearly. Listen to what he says. We know God by knowing his world. All of God's revelation comes through creaturely means, whether events, prophets, scripture, or merely the human eye or ear. Thus, we cannot know anything about God without knowing something about the world at the same time. The converse is also true. We cannot know the world without knowing God. As we have seen, God is clearly seen in the creation. Although God is not part of creation, he is part of the world in the sense of our situation. He is the most significant fact of our experience. He is present with and near to the world that he has made. What is Dr. Frame saying here? He's saying God created us to explore the world so that as we discover and experience what's in it, we would, in that process, discover and experience God as well. Let me say that one more time. God created us to explore the world so that as we experience and discover things in it, that would cause us to experience God more and discover things about God more had we not take that exploration at all. Now, of course, Dr. Frame is not speculating with weird philosophy. He's simply reiterating what the Bible teaches specifically, Psalm 19. Read it with me. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. So, to sum things up, God created us to be explorers to where we would discover things about this world so that as we make those discoveries, we would also discover more things about God. As we know more about the world, we would come to know about the creator of the world. We would come to know the one who made it and what he has called us to be and called us to do. And this correlation between knowing more of the world leads you to knowing more about God is something that no human being can deny or repress. No human being can escape that correlation. But here's the thing. That correlation between knowing more about the world leads you to knowing more about God can be perverted, it can be corrupted to where it can lead you to wrong conclusions, specifically about God. What do I mean? Bart Ehrman, who was a professor of mine, is a professor of early Christianity at UNC Chapel Hill. And at one point he was a devout Christian but later became a staunch atheist. And on his website, he explains how he lost his faith. Listen to a portion of this testimony of atheism. He says this, we live in a world in which a child dies every five seconds of starvation. Every five seconds. Every minute there are 25 people, 25 people who die because they do not have clean water to drink. Every hour 700 people die of malaria. Where is God in all this? 
We live in a world in which earthquakes in the Himalayas kill 50,000 people and leave 3 million without shelter in the face of oncoming winter. We live in a world where a hurricane destroys New Orleans, where tsunamis kill 300,000 people in one fell swoop, where millions of children are born with horrible dearth, birth defects. Where is God? To say that he will eventually make all things right is wrong, that is wrong, seems to me now to be pure wishful thinking. Now notice what Bart Ehrman is doing here, okay? In order to say anything about God, he understands correctly that he first has to know something about the world, right? But what he knows about the world leads him to wrong conclusions about God. Do you guys see that? In other words, he is correct to assume there's a correlation between knowing more about the world will lead you to a knowledge of God, but his knowledge, his conclusion of who God is, is absolutely wrong. Here we begin to see why we need Jesus to be the Prince of Peace for us. Because the correlation God intended between discovering the world leading to you, a discovery of God, is malfunctioning. It's not working properly. Here's the question. Why? What happened? What caused the corruption? Again, you have to go back to the beginning of human history. So we return to Genesis, the book of Genesis, but this time to the third chapter, where we read the situation where Satan is trying to tempt Eve to sin against God. Listen to what it says. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat of it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now let me quickly mention some very crucial background biblical information in order to fully understand what's going on here. The tree that Satan wants Adam and Eve to eat from is the very same tree that God explicitly commanded them in the previous chapter not to eat from. In chapter 2, it tells us that God told Adam and Eve, look, go and eat any tree in the garden. Go and explore all the trees. Go discover what's out there amongst the orchards and eat. But there's one tree you can never explore. One tree you can never eat of, right? Do not eat from this tree. And so it's obvious why Satan would want Adam and Eve to eat from this particular tree because he wants them to disobey God. But don't let what's obvious cause you to overlook the other thing Satan is trying to do here. Because as I'm about to show you, Satan is trying to develop a normative pattern for us in terms of how we disobey God. Follow along. Think with me for just a moment. Think of what's happening here in Genesis 3. Satan hates God, right? Satan wants to destroy everything that God has created, including God's relationship to mankind, okay? And then we have an instance where God specifically gives a limit, a restriction to Adam and Eve's exploration. He says, go and explore, and therefore go eat from any tree, but you cannot explore the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You cannot explore, you cannot go on a search for what it's about, what it represents, just do not go there, he says. Don't go there. Ah, what does Satan see? He sees an opportunity. He sees an opportunity to exploit the natural creaturely instincts of Adam and Eve to explore. And he shoves the forbidden tree right in front of them. And for the first time, he originates in the minds of man, in Adam and Eve, that maybe there's another purpose, another goal, another reason for why we should go and discover what's out there in the world. And in fact, the way that he uh, describes his temptation to Eve, he almost seems to be communicating to Eve and Adam, look, if you make the discovery of God the only reason why you would see what's out there in the world, you might be missing out on other things worth seeking, other adventures worth going on, 
other quests pursuing. In other words, Satan is saying, look, if you make the only reason why you want to know what's out there is so that you can know more of God, you might give up some things that you, maybe you shouldn't give up. You might be making some sacrifices that are way too costly. Are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to miss out on the possibilities of other things that you could discover out there other than just knowing more of God? And so Adam and Eve, they succumb. They give in to temptation. And as soon as they do, their creaturely instincts for the search, for the quest, for the adventure get so perverted to where now the ultimate purpose of why we go out and discover what's out in the world Knowing more of God, discovering more of God is never going to be the goal of any human being afterwards. This is why the Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 3. He says this, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Here's the question. What happens? What are the consequences of what happens when you no longer make knowing God or discovering more about God as the primary reason, the primary goal of why you see what's out there in the world, what are the consequences? Again, listen to this psychologist, Paul Tournier. He says it this way, or he's a psychiatrist, excuse me. He says this, quote, the lure of adventure is not amendable to reason. Consider the big businessman. Already overworked, he comes back in the evening to his office. He can scarcely fit in a holiday. And when he does, he keeps in touch with his associates and gives them instruction. It is not that he wants to earn more money. He does not even enjoy what he already has. It is that he has fallen under the law of adventure. For other people, the amassing of more and more money takes the place of the real adventure, which is absent from their life. And all they can buy with their money acts as a substitute for adventure. Cars, shows, pretty dresses, and organized tours. The habit of drug-taking in all of its various forms can also be regarded as an expression of the instinct for adventure. The subject is fascinated by the marvelous illusions of adventure which the drug provides. The adventure of power is another adventure. This is what condemns all dictators to harden in an attitude of intransience, to silence every voice raised against them. Look that in its best light. Adultery may be seen. For many men, the only means of satisfying their craving for adventure. It is no coincidence that the very word adventure is used of the sudden blaze of passionate love that turns a man's ordered existence upside down. Wow, this is interesting. According to Tournier, he seemed to have stumbled the consequences of what happens when knowing more of God, discovering more of God through your discovery of the world is no longer that goal. You will end up a workaholic. You will end up a greedy miser consumer you will end up as a crazy drug addict you'll end up as a crazy dictator if you had the power you might even end up as a person who destroys your own family because of the adventure of a fling all of this sounds very similar to how the apostle john describes those who want nothing of god and don't care about god at all listen to what he says in first john chapter 2 starting in the 15th verse we read do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the love, for, excuse me, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Notice how John indirectly describes those who seek to engage the world apart from discovering God. Three things that we see. Number one, they crave comfort, right? Physical pleasure. They crave status, right, achievements and possession, and they just crave. 
They crave to the point that they will never tolerate being denied anything, right? That's just what it means that they crave for everything they see. They just want more, more, more. Give me more, give me more. Don't you dare prevent me from getting more. This is a constant intoleration of being denied. They just want it all. Here's the question. What happens when you live in a world filled with people like this? How does that world look? It sounds very similar to the way Bart Ehrman described the world that led him to the conclusion that there is no God. Could it be that the way that the world is is not evidence that God doesn't exist, rather it's evidence that human beings don't exist? And what I mean by that is, the world is as messed up as it is, not because it's a reflection of God's absence, it's a reflection that human beings are not acting the way human beings should act, but instead we're acting like subhuman creatures, causing so much chaos and so much destruction. This is why we need Jesus to be the Prince of Peace for us. Because after the fall of man in the garden, no man or woman has been able to properly live out this creaturely instinct of going out into the world and discovering what's out there because they don't have the desire for the ultimate purpose, the ultimate goal for those adventures, which is knowing God more, loving God more, seeking God more. Do you see that? So this is why Jesus came to be the Prince of Peace for us. He came to restore in us the desire for the proper goal, the ultimate reason for the various adventures that we go on in our lives. But here's the question. How does he do that? How exactly does Jesus pull that off? And this leads me to my final point, how Jesus succeeds in being the Prince of Peace for us. You know, when God the Son chose to come into this world as Jesus, you could argue that Jesus went on an adventure on his own. In fact, that's how some people have described it. Listen again, Paul Tournier, this is what he says. The God of the Bible is the God who acts. This is what distinguishes him from the God of the philosophers and from the gods of all other religions. He is the God who commits himself. He commits himself in every person's life. He does not interest himself only in man's religious life, but in his whole life, in his work, in his occupation. And he turns that occupation into a veritable adventure. And then the adventure of God is worked out in that of his people, in history, in wars, in victories, and defeats, in successes and failures, in prosperity and want. He hopes, he is moved, he calls, he travails. But each time, too, men's hearts are hardened again. The most clear-sighted prophet trembles before these failures and cries out, Oh, that thou would rend the heavens and come down. And God did come down in person. This was the supreme adventure with its supreme risk of disappointment and suffering. This was the earthly adventure of Jesus of Christmas of the gospel. Notice what Tournier is saying here because we have failed in living out the adventurous life that God has called us to live Jesus came to live out his own adventure but unlike the adventures that we go on where the main goal is our comfort our status to where we would never be denied anything at all his adventure was the complete opposite right Jesus adventure was not comfortable it was filled with suffering and humiliation and pain Jesus' adventure did not result in him getting high status and possessions. He was nailed to a cross, naked, right? In shame. He didn't have no status. He had the status of a condemned criminal. Jesus' adventure did not result in him never being denied anything. It resulted in him being denied everything, including the most important thing. Do you know what Jesus was denying that he treasured the most? He was denied 
the Father's love. When he dies on that cross, as he's dying, what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the moment where God the Father looked at Jesus, no longer seeing him as his only begotten son. He saw him as the representation of all of humanity's sin. And what did the Father do? He did this. Turned his back. And he was denied the face of his Father. How many of us in here would ever choose to go on an adventure like that? None of us. And yet that's the adventure Jesus went on for us. Why? So that you would know the kind of God you are missing out on by you choosing to go on adventures for other reasons other than to discover more about this God. That's why. You would miss out on a God who loves you this deeply, a God who is committed to you this faithfully, a God who is so sacrificial for you this radically. That's the whole message of Christmas. The message of Christmas is that God of heaven and earth loves you this deeply. He is committed to you this faithfully. He is this sacrificial for you this radically. That is what the gospel message, that is the Christmas message. And when you believe that, when you understand that, and when you take it to heart, what do you experience? You know what you experience? Peace. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace. The peace is the consequence, the result, the fruit. When you accept his adventure that he took for you. You feel peace in that when you choose to forfeit all the various adventures that promise a status, comfort, and of never being denied, when you decide to say no to that, there's no anxiety. There's no fear of missing out. There's no uncertainty. There's no fear that you've given up on something you shouldn't have given up. Rather, you embrace the adventure of knowing more of this God as you live out the various adventures of life that God has called you to live. This is how Jesus succeeds in being the Prince of Peace for us. Here's my question. Have you experienced this peace? Are you no longer agitated? No fear of missing out? By going on the journey of life with one single purpose, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection? All of us in here are on an adventure. All of us in here are on a quest. Don't deny it. For some of us, we're on an adventure to become professionals in this city. Some of us are on an adventure, that, that romantic adventure of finding the one. Where is she? Where is he? Right? Some of you are on the adventure of marriage. Some of you are on the adventure of trying to be parents. Some of you are on the adventure of getting a home in a nice little area outside of the city, wherever that may be. All of us in here are on a quest of some sort. But here's my question. Is the quest that you are going on for the purpose of discovering more about the God who is for you? Or is it really just for what the Apostle John says, people who are worldly are in search for? Money, comfort, the ability to never be denied anything. God created you to go on adventure to discover who he is. Not to think that there's another reason to why you go on these adventures apart from knowing him. But here's my question. Do you get that? Do you understand that? At this time, I'd like to invite you to prayerfully reflect on today's message for some personal application. And to facilitate that, I would invite you just to close your eyes or just to kind of focus on the question that I'm going to ask you in just a moment. And it's really one question. Is Jesus your Prince of Peace? 
is he your prince of peace? Have you experienced the peace in knowing that when you commit yourself to venturing out into the world for the sole purpose of knowing him, that you have nothing to be anxious about, that you have nothing to fear because you're not missing out on anything of real significance? You know, as you consider whatever adventures you're currently pursuing, career, career advancement, marriage, family, a house in the burbs, are your goals in those adventures comfort status and not wanting to ever be denied? Or is it truly so that you go on these adventures to discover more of your God and his love for you in Jesus? I want to invite you now to go to him in prayer. Let's pray together. And Father, as we think about your word for today, and as we ponder on the various things that we have pursued, the various journeys and quests and adventures that we are currently on, Lord, would you guard our hearts so that we would see the ultimate purpose of the adventure of life, which is to know more of you, to know more of your love for us, and to be caught up in wonder and in hope Father, I pray that for all of us in this room who have certain hopes and dreams to which they are striving so hard, journeying so hard to realize, Father, I pray that they would hear your voice and the summons for them to know who you are. And so, Father, keep the eyes of our hearts fixated upon that beautiful truth of knowing you and enjoying you forever. Help us to not fall into the satanic temptation of the thinking that there is another search, another discovery that is valid or worth giving up the search of knowing more of you. Would you keep us close by helping us to always remember the adventure of your son, Jesus? And let that be the greatest evidence that there is no greater adventure, no greater discovery than knowing you through your son, Jesus. Help us now, for we ask all these things in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus. And all God's people together said, Amen.